Welcome to episode 1451 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined, as always, by Ben Limber of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm doing very well. I'm right in the post-Game 7 high. Yeah! <laughs> that was a fun one. This series, it really salvaged itself. It really delivered in the end. Yeah, I, you know, the, the ones in the beginning were okay. And the ones at the end were good. And uh, yeah. Yeah, well, there was a fangrass post by Tony Wolf after game five about yes. why the series had been so boring, which was something that I was thinking of writing also if the series had continued to be boring. Although that's not a very fun post to write if it's just, hey, why was this boring? Who's going to be excited to read about something being boring? But in the end, we do not have to write that because nope. it turned out to be pretty fun. And it stayed strange the whole way through. Road team winning every game. Home field advantage <laughs> does not exist anymore. And... uh and we got a couple exciting games at the end, too, with weird calls and interesting managerial moves and stars doing star stuff. And the pitcher's duel we'd been waiting for, at least for the first six innings. That was yeah. fun. Yeah, I will say that I feel I feel sadness in my heart for Zach Granke. Mm, yeah. But we don't have to start with sadness because <laughs> how, how exciting for the Nationals and their yeah. fans, you know? I have talked before on this podcast about experiencing anxiety on behalf of starters who come in in relief in the postseason because they're not pitching in their usual role and what if they embarrass themselves and they might undo all the good work they do in the regular season and tonight, I wanted so badly for Max Scherzer to be done pitching. <laughs> wanted, <laughs> wanted a very good starter in relief with my whole heart, uh-huh. <laughs> with all of it. But yeah, I mean, like, uh, you know, uh, star players did star player things. Old and endearing players, yes. old being a, a baseball relative term, of course, uh, did, did cool, exciting stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. <laughs> Nationals are a really likable team. Yeah. And I mean, most teams are likable, or at least most of the players on most teams are likable. And yeah. I think a lot of the Astros players are likable. Their, yeah. their front office may not be quite so likable. <laughs> Roberto Asuna may not be so likable. But most of the Astros players are, are likable, and I would have been happy for most of them. But, you know, they won one. Most of them yeah. won one. And the Nationals, they really earned it. <laughs> they really... Yeah earned this victory. I mean, they were a good team, so I don't want to go overboard on the whole, like, this came out of nowhere, the underdogs, the nobodies ended up beating the the best team. I mean, I, I do think that the Astros were the best team, and the Nationals beat them, but the Nationals were a great team, too. It, yeah. it just so happened that they had injuries, and they started off in that very slow and weird way, and so they were fighting back from behind the entire season and that's a big part of the story of their season but i think it obscures the fact that they were a very good team and the projections believed in them and the stats said they were good and ultimately they justified that and they showed that they were very good and they outplayed i think teams that were 
probably better than them, at least over the bulk of the regular season, if you include those first bad games <laughs> that they played sort of shorthanded. They beat the Dodgers. They beat the Astros. They yeah. they came back to beat the Brewers in the wildcard game. I mean, they they really did it. They beat, I think, Joe Sheehan pointed it out that they beat the best collection of regular season teams that any World Series team has ever beaten, any champion has beaten en route to the championship, just in terms of regular season wins. And that's not even counting the wildcard game. They they just they beat really good teams to get there. And they faced lots of elimination games and they were losing in elimination games and they just kept coming back and I don't know if it's magic or baby shark or clubhouse stuff or just the fact that they're really good players and, yeah. and they showed it yeah it is suboptimal to have like four and a half pitchers that you trust <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but when th- you know when three of those four and a half are Max Scherzer and Steven Strasburg and Patrick Corbin, mm-hmm. that plays pretty well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is a baseball team that embraced Baby Shark as a song and made us listen to it like a lot. Like not a little bit, a lot. We listened yeah. to that song a lot. You and I, <laughs> neither of us have children. I have nieces and I see them often. They don't do Baby Shark because they, they're, they're not preschool age yet. No mm-hmm. Baby Shark. And... <laughs> We listen to that song, and you know what? I don't mind it. I don't mind Baby Shark. That's <laughs> no. how charming this team was. That is the the magnitude of their accomplishments. <laughs> they picked the worst song, just like one of the very worst songs on the entire face of the planet, and mm-hmm. we're like, yeah, Baby Shark. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be thinking about that song in my dreams tonight. That's, yeah. that's just in there. I'm going to need the team from Inception to get it out of there. <laughs> The Dodgers, the Cardinals, the Astros, that's 304 combined yeah. wins. I forgot about the Cardinals there for the a second. It didn't take so long to dispatch the Cardinals. No. and <laughs> They're not quite like those other two teams, but still, that's 304 yeah. combined regular season wins. That is the most ever. No other team has topped 300. The previous high was the 2004 Red Sox, who beat the Angels, Yankees, and Cardinals. That's 298 wins. So... They really did it. And yeah, I'm happy for individual players on that team. I'm happy for Ryan Zimmerman, who was there from the very start and got to stick around long enough to see it all pay off. I'm happy to see Steven Strasburg win a World Series and get hugs and learn to like being hugged and to give hugs to others and and to change his postseason narrative from shutdown to just absolute stud yeah. who, who you want on the mound and and that was great and Howie Kendrick with just another absolute dagger just incredible come from behind game winner at this stage of his career when a lot of people had understandably written him off I mean just so much to like here and Juan Soto who has hopefully 20 more years to keep trying to win championships but just the most likable possible baseball player that has ever walked the face of the earth Daniel Hudson was released by the Angels. He is a pitcher with an arm that works, and he was released by the Los Angeles Angels on March 22nd of this year. He threw the final pitch of the World Series. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, after the game, you saw Annabelle Sanchez and Max Scherzer embracing and crying and saying, <laughs> 
As Sanchez said, we f- we won one. We finally won one. Yeah. I defy you to not find that delightful. Yeah, that's great. It's yeah. amazing. And Scherzer had every career accomplishment except this, basically. And yeah. Now he crosses this off the list. I mean, that's it's great. It's just really great to see those guys win. It was very infectious and wonderful. Yeah, yeah. They were just, I mean, we talked about it the last time we recorded. We do not have a way to quantify the effect that teammates working well together, which we often call chemistry, we don't know how many runs that's worth in a game. We don't know how many wins that's worth over the course of a season. It seems to matter some, mostly because we all have jobs and we know that we do better at those jobs and like them more when we don't hate the people we work with. Mm-hmm. And so we don't know. But it it made for great viewing. It made it really fun to watch baseball at a moment when we really needed to be able to have some fun watching baseball. <laughs> yeah, it was it was, and not in a you know dereliction of duty kind of way, but in a it 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 was nice to be reminded why we care so much and why all the stuff that isn't working well that we need to fix is worth fixing and working hard to get right because. When it is right, it can be this, and that's Mm -hmm. incredible. Yep. ah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Sean Doolittle. Sean Doolittle. Easy to root for player. Yeah. 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 Just a great group of guys, as they said themselves. But from afar, it was just a lot of fun to watch them and follow them. And they beat the odds. I, I don't think the odds were quite as heavily stacked against them as some would have you believe mm-hmm. because they were very good and the postseason is the postseason. But still, yeah, they had quite a ride to get there and the last game was great too. So we should talk. Obviously, there's also what this means for DC and those fans. Yeah. And, and there's hope for you and your Mariners, teams that have never <laughs> won a World Series can win World Series. It can happen for you too someday. So <laughs> I have to say, as a neutral observer, right? I mean, like we as baseball writing types, we mostly root for good games. Mm-hmm. We want the games to be compelling. And all of this stuff, you know, guys who are charming and really talented and seem to like each other, that's all very good and it makes for good watching. And we root for that kind of stuff, but we're mostly, we just want good games. And if a series goes seven, all the better. That's the stuff that we want. Mm -hmm. I was a neutral observer and felt terrible for much of watching Max Scherzer just because I was so anxious on his behalf and I had the thought uh, I watched the first couple of innings of this game with my mom and I turned to her and I said if this was the Mariners and I were still the kind of fan I used to be I think I would just have passed out or had to have (laughs) turned it off or started to maybe consume worry snacks in uh, startling quantities so Yes, but also maybe it's better to, to not. <laughs> maybe it's better to not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's probably not better to not. Look how happy they were. They're so happy. Yeah. So it's probably Worth better. It. Yeah, it. it's probably better to lose a couple years on the back end of your life to the anxiety. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and and the whole, I mean, for so much of this decade, like the Nationals were one of the most successful teams of this decade in terms of total wins, certainly, but most of those were regular season wins and they just could not get over even the first hump of winning a postseason series. And so to have it all just kind of come to fruition and be washed away at the end of the decade, that whole narrative is just gone now. It's as gone as Bryce Harper they don't have to drag it around as a franchise anymore. Yeah. They won a World Series. So that's that. And I, I have to say, you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of ways that teams construct rosters of good players. There are a lot of ways that teams construct teams that have deep postseason runs that win World Series championships. But there is something very encouraging about a team that was willing to spend money on players who were good getting to raise the trophy uh i think Mm -hmm. that you know at this moment in baseball that's also a good thing for us to be able to point to and see again there are a lot of ways to do it and you know the nationals like the learners will be seemingly paying max scherzer's grandchildren his contract (laughs) so i don't know financially how advisable that is but it is there is something that is kind of nice about seeing a team and it's not like the astros payroll is slight by any means, but no. you know, it's nice to see a team that said, "Hey, we we uh, we don't have enough pitching, so we're gonna go spend money on Patrick Corbin because mm-hmm. he's good at pitching, and it would be nice to have him." And then it turned out they were like, "Wow, well, we're really glad we did that." <laughs> yeah, boy, would we be in trouble! Yikes! Yeah, um, that so, was a good demonstration of, yeah. <laughs> of pay the top free agent, get yeah. Max Scherzer. I mean, Max Scherzer is sure. like one of the most successful free agent signings of all time. Of so all time. not necessarily repeatable, <laughs> no. but they they did that and they got more than what they paid for. And then yeah, they went out and got Patrick Corbin and yeah, they let Bryce Harper leave and I guess they made a decision that this would be better for us. This is how we want to spend this amount of money. But there were those two guys that they spent on and uh, and they delivered in the biggest moment. Yeah, they appear to be just perhaps cursed in a in a deep and ancient way about being able to assemble a bullpen that is not terrifying. <laughs> yeah. But it didn't end up mattering. <laughs> yeah. Not for lack of trying. Like no. they've turned over that bullpen like <laughs> several times. It's not like they stuck with the same guys. It's that they keep getting different guys and they keep being bad. But Good enough. Just barely good enough with the postseason schedule and all those off days and a great starting rotation that became a bullpen for October. It worked. So... (laughs) They they planned well, they took advantage of the schedule and the unique way that playoff baseball works and put that plan into practice and everyone was on board and it worked out just well enough. Yeah, the the bullpen and the dugout were like that MC Escher like forever <laughs> stairs. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just <laughs> looping back on each other over and over again. Infinite staircase, is that what I'm trying to say? House of stairs. <laughs> Bunch of stairs, Penrose stairs, they're Penrose stairs. There you go. I know what you mean. (laughs) (laughs) So this game, there's a lot to talk about in this game. Managerial moves to dissect and 
tactical decisions, but also some brilliance on the losing side. And sure. you brought up Zach Greinke, and it looked for <laughs> six plus innings like Zach Greinke was going to be the story of this game, and he still deserves to be a story of this game. And Zach Greinke, just watching him when he's on is just one of the most pleasurable baseball experiences there is. And yeah. there's such a drastic difference between Granky when he's not quite on and when he really is because we had seen him not be quite on earlier in this postseason and he just doesn't look all that impressive when he doesn't have that pinpoint command because yeah. he's not really putting up impressive radar readings anymore and so you wonder this is that cranky this is that guy it just <laughs> it doesn't look that great like when we were doing our second patreon live stream sam was coming up with a theory on the fly that Maybe Granky is actually just really good at getting bad hitters out and isn't actually that good anymore at getting good hitters out. And so he was doing some play and dixing and looking at splits to see if maybe Granky's better against like the bottom of the order the last couple of years since he sort of lost his fastball literally but he didn't really find compelling evidence that that was the case I don't think that is the case but you could kind of talk yourself into that because you're looking at this guy throwing 89 and when he's not putting it where he wants to it looks hittable and it is hittable but when he does put it where he wants to and he very often does it is just exquisite. It's so much fun to watch. And other than that changeup that he left in the middle of the plate to <sighs> Rendon in the seventh, like he just didn't really leave anything in a hittable spot. He was mixing. He was in and out. Maybe he was getting some help with the strike zone from time to time. I think that's fair to say. But <laughs> maybe he was earning that also the way that pitchers historically have by just going two inches off the outside corner because they're trying to do that. And he just was masterful. It was so much fun to watch. And I think he, you know, this is a theory I'm developing on the fly. So I might get to the end of it and decide it's very silly. And then we can just uh, move on and say, oh, Meg, aren't you tired? But um, I think that some of the best pitchers to watch in terms of your actual aesthetic experience of them as pitchers are guys who can do a lot of different things and complement their skills on the mound with other stuff. So sometimes it's, you know, like Garrett Cole has a zillion pitches. He just has all of these many pitches. He's Mm -hmm. got a zillion of them. Granke has the command, but you also, this was like a a peak Granke as athletic pitcher game. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things about him that is so enjoyable is that he continues to, you know, despite the years and the velocity declining and all of that nonsense, like remains just one of the most adept fielding pitchers in baseball and just seemed to get comebacker after comebacker. Yeah. <laughs> um, and be perfectly positioned to field them and be early to stuff. And I just, you know, there was that, I don't recall what inning it was now, but there was that one moment where Fox had their, you know, pre-prepared, here's Zach Granke being a great fielding pitcher, click mm-hmm. package, and they played it. And then he immediately got a ground out that he fielded cleanly and got the runner out. So it was just, it was a very fun uh, display of all the different ways that Zach Greinke can be good in one game, except for like a couple of pitches that ended up being quite a problem. But, you know, I think this is why starting pitching is more compelling a lot of the time than relief pitching because you see a variety of pitches. If you see a bunch of pitches and the guy can field, you're like, wow, look at this complete athlete. Yeah. 
Zach Greinke's yeah. not falling down and throwing the ball off his leg. <laughs> the only he way it could have been better is if it had been in, in NL Park and he had <laughs> yes. hit, and then we could have seen him demonstrate that aspect of his skills too. But yeah, it really does give you this great confidence. Like I, I always have a moment of anxiety when a pitcher fields a comebacker yes. and he turns to second base and you know he's going to try to go for the double play and there's a perception that pitchers are like really terrible at throwing to second base and I don't know whether that's true or whether I'm just like scarred from remembering Mariano Rivera throwing that ball away in the mm. 2001 World Series Game 7 or many other instances but it always sort of sticks in your mind because it's like man you just threw 97 on the black yeah. and you can't throw you know just lob a ball over to second to start this double play but of course it's a completely different motion and it's not the thing that they repeat over and over and over again for their entire lives so I get why they throw it away and they're rushing and they're not fielders they're primarily pitchers but Granky is a fielder like he yeah. really is just like having another fully qualified all-around baseball player on the field and you can just see how big an advantage it is and yeah and it's his athleticism and it's the fact that he just like finishes in perfect fielding position. Yes. But I mean, it really, it, what it, he had like, what, at least five assists in that game, something like that. Something and like that. There was a fun fact about it being the most in a World Series game since Maddox or someone. I, I was. That's an actual fun fact. Yes. It, I was bombarded in so many fun facts that I can't keep them straight, but it was something <laughs> like that. So yeah, that was just really fun. And and I I think, like, Granky is, I don't know if it's as fun to watch later career Granky as it was to watch peak Granky, where he just had everything. Like, yeah. in a way, it's more fun to watch him work with these limitations and still succeed, but there is less margin for error, and, and you're always kind of worried, because if he does make a mistake, then he's less likely to get away with it than he used to be. So... In a way, I miss the Granky where he literally hit every radar gun reading between 60 and 100, and it was just this absolute show of every possible talent that a pitcher could possess. It, it was just like it was like hearing Jeff Buckley sing or something. Mm -hmm. It's like the four octave range mm -hmm. and Granky's 40 mile per hour range. It was kind of like that. Whereas now, in this stage of his career, it's equally pleasing or it's close to equally pleasing, but it's different. It's like if I guess if I'm sticking with this singer-musician <laughs> analogy, it'd be like a, a singer who maybe loses a little of that range and can't hit those high notes anymore, but maybe gets that like weathered, gruff quality that mm -hmm. suits some singers so well, depending on what their material is. So like, I don't know, post-peak Sinatra or something where he, it's not quite as smooth as it was and you can kind of hear the gravel in, in his voice but now he can really sing those saloon songs and sound like it's actually 3 a.m and he's sitting in the bar and someone just broke up with him because he kind of just sounds like that now so that's kind of granky now he can't hit the high notes either he's lost most of that 90 to 100 range but i like both versions and I don't know if he felt any different on the inside than he does in a typical start because his pregame press conference was just like, yeah, big game, pretty big game, <laughs> the standard Granky, and we all love him for that. But that was a lot of fun, and now I guess after celebrating how great he is, 
we can probably transition to the conversation that everyone is having and will continue to have, which is why didn't we get to see even more Grinky in this game? Why was Grinky <sighs> pulled when he was pulled? So yeah. <laughs> to remind everyone of the situation, this was seventh inning, so he had given up the home run to Rendon, who has just hit big home run after big yeah. home run or, or big hit of some kind in all of these high leverage situations and elimination games. So no shame in giving up a home run to Granky, but you know, he had gotten the first out, he had gotten eaten to ground out, then there was the Rendon Homer, then Juan Soto walked, and then AJ Hinch went to Will Harris, and we know what happened next. Howie Kendrick hit the foul pole, and that was basically the ball game. Howie Kendrick. It was Howie Kendrick, and he hit the foul pole. Think about the sentence that you just said. <laughs> that was an that was a critically important play in a World Series game. In a World Series game seven in 2019. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, incredible that that happened, but it did. <laughs> Sorry, I thought we just needed to, we needed to dwell on the sentence for a no, hot you, second. You can't emphasize that enough. I yeah, think that that is fair. So Grinky's pitch count in this game finished at 80, 80, 80. pitches. That's yeah. not a whole lot of pitches. No. However, he was what third time through the order at that point. He had walked one Soto. I, I don't know, like. He obviously wasn't far removed from looking totally in command of everything, but he'd right. given up the homer, he'd given up the walk to two incredible hitters. But still, like, if this were not the 2019 postseason, I feel like this would be a move that many managers would make and we would all nod our heads and say third time through the order and one run lead and you want a fresh arm in there. Like that would be sort of a standard move that was made, I think. But we're yeah. in this weird time portal back to like 2014 or something <laughs> where every pitcher throws 110 pitches and every postseason start. And so it's more glaring that that did not happen. But you know, it's Game 7, and there was another stat on the broadcast. I think that this was the first Game 7 in a World Series, I suppose, where both pitchers went at least five innings since 2001. Like, Game 7 is all hands on deck. You're pulling guys. You're putting in your fresh arm whenever there's any sign that your starter is struggling. So in retrospect, obviously, given what happened next, a lot of people will not forgive A.J. Hinch for this, but I don't know. What did you think at the time and, and now if you've changed your mind at all? I will admit that at the time, it didn't it didn't really move me much. Mm -hmm. I felt that the the relative the relatively low pitch count, I, at least compared to what other starters have done, was probably being offset by him going through the order a third time. Mm -hmm. I was perhaps a little surprised, and what this mostly made me wonder is what exactly was going on with Garrett Cole. I guess yeah, I was a bit right. surprised <laughs> that they went to Harris in that situation, mostly because Cole had been up and warming if i recall correctly and yes, so i think had. i think i expected that they would shift to garrett cole and i would have felt nervous about that in the way that you do when someone who hasn't come in and relief since college comes in and relief <laughs> in one of yeah. the most important game states of his entire career right but i think i expected to see cole in that situation and so 
I don't know, and we haven't gotten, you know, quotes back from many of the post-game stuff yet, so we don't really know what the situation was there, but it made me wonder, like, was something up with Mm -hmm. Cole that he wasn't available? Did he feel something funny when he was warming? You know, I was just a bit surprised that with who they went to, not that they went to someone who wasn't Zach Granke. Yeah. So Will Harris is a really good pitcher. He's a really good pitcher. Over the past five years, I I just looked up the stat, like minimum 200 innings. There are only two relievers who have a lower ERA than Will Harris over that period. And I think it's Zach Britton and Aroldis Chapman, maybe like Will Harris is really good. He is not extremely long worked. He's not going to give you that many innings. He's not going to go multi-inning outings but when he's in the game he's very good and he had been very good up until game six in this postseason i don't think he had allowed a run and it's sort of a shame that uh he finally was kind of having his moments like yeah i think sam talked on our first patreon live stream maybe about how will harris just he never really seemed to be at the top of the bullpen hierarchy didn't really get saves except for i think one brief period But now he was kind of the go-to guy in this postseason, and he had earned that, I Mm -hmm. think. And then he gave up these two dingers and, you know, back-breaking dingers in in these two games, and that's that's a shame. I I think – I guess you could say that – He was maybe worked hard. Maybe he was tired. I I know that at some point Hinch said something about how Harris needed a day off as much as anyone. Mm -hmm. And he certainly has worked a lot. So if he was compromised or fatigued in some way, then, yeah, maybe don't bring him in in that spot. But I don't know. He's been so good for so long that I don't have a huge problem with pulling Granky and... If you are going to pull Granky, I don't know. I guess I, I don't have that huge a problem with Harris. I, I think, I mean, the pitch was fine. Yeah. Like the it was a low and away cutter, and really, like I guess you know Kendrick just kind of flicked it the other way, and it it wasn't a bomb or anything, and Mm-mm. it just it happened to hit the foul pole. And it hit the foul <laughs> pole, Ben, in yeah. 2019. It did. So <laughs> I don't know. Like it wasn't a terrible pitch. And no. He's a really good pitcher. I I don't hate it. I mean, narratively speaking, I would have preferred to continue to see Granky. I would have been happy to see Granky try to pitch his way out of that and get himself the win and stay in. Like that would have been fun. I was really enjoying that Granky start. But analytically speaking, didn't hate that move. And Harris, he's a really good pitcher. Has been great for you, and he made a good pitch. And Kendrick just put a good swing on it. And to be clear, I wasn't. I wasn't like I was sitting on my couch going, "My God, how could you possibly go to Will Harris?" Because you're right; he's been he's been phenomenal, and I, I guess I have been somewhat conditioned, perhaps by the Nationals, <laughs> to yeah. ex to expect a sort of conservatism to manifest itself in some of these decisions where you really just don't want to allow any further decline in your win expectancy. And so Mm -hmm. I think that was maybe why I was conditioned in that moment to think that they would go to Cole, especially since he had been warming. But yeah, it wasn't at the, like at the time I was like, ah, there's Will Harris, as we noted on uh, one of our uh, live streams. He has the look of a man who has seen things. You know, he has the look, he has the sort of 
space where you're like, he is steady in a storm. He, you know, he has observed life and all of its uh, conflicts and complications, and it, he can take it. He's got that <laughs> facial hair. So I, you, you also know, say he looked like a Cupid doll. <laughs> he used to look like a Cupid doll. It is important to note that he no longer looks like a Cupid doll, but when Will Harris did not have facial hair, he did look a little bit like Cupid doll who had been cursed and brought to life. I don't know that the facial hair changed that all that much. Now me. he looks, yeah, but now he's like the the Cupid doll has been cursed and brought to life, and then gone on <laughs> misadventures that are now part of a yes. Halloween movie. And now it's like, oh, I've seen things I can't yeah. unsee. <laughs> to me, it looks like a Cupid doll that someone just glued some hairs in <laughs> here and there on, <laughs> like the like the magnetic beard. Uh, yeah, right. Like it's, drawn beard. <laughs> yeah, it's like some iron magnetic filings that someone poured onto his face and they stuck there for some reason it's oh, not no. my favorite facial hair anyway no it's uh, yeah i mean look uh not everyone can grow it you, no you, you grow what you can grow yeah your face dictates it so yeah it's apparent it's apparently the the thing so <laughs> so yeah in the moment i wasn't deeply offended i was surprised but i wasn't you know, horrified. I mean, uh, of all the weird leaving a starter in too long or taking them out early decisions that were made in this uh, game, the, the Scherzer stuff was yeah. significantly stranger. I agree. Um, just given, you know, what we knew of his injuries and the way that he was obviously laboring and how poor the command was at, at times and, you know, the fact that he had given up runs, right? So mm-hmm. I was surprised more by that decision perhaps that surprise was such that it you know numbed my surprise to granky still to granky being removed from the game i should say yeah yeah given the way that martinez has just trusted his few reliable pitchers and given just you know the grittiness and the guttiness and how max scherzer got himself onto the mound in this situation (sighs) i'm not shocked i guess that martinez stuck with him until basically he was forced not to, which he he wasn't really because the Astros just could not strike that big blow other than the Gurriel solo shot. But it just felt like they were really playing with fire, leaving Scherzer in that long. And I just, I looked up at some point and it was still one nothing, And I, it, it felt to me like it should be at least like four nothing yeah. or something. Cause it was just like, how does he keep getting out of this? Like some of it was just maybe, you know, de-juiced ball. Like Jordan Alvarez almost hit a three run homer that yep. just died at the warning track or stopped there and so there was that kind of thing and then there were hard hit balls that were right at people and then there was that just inexplicable Robinson Chirinos bunt which that was just the weirdest thing and I I have not heard yet whether that was his own decision or whether Hinch ordered that for some reason but that was just wild to me that they did that because it it really seemed like they had Scherzer on the ropes, basically. Like it was the second inning and they get the Gurriel homer leading off. Then Alvarez singles, Correa singles. They're hitting every ball like 105 yeah. miles per hour. And then Robinson Chirinos pops out bunting. Yep. And I just, it's the second inning and yep. y- you're just, crushing this guy right now he doesn't look like he has it he's got the whole neck thing going on you're already winning you've got a good offense it just really 
did not make any sense to me that Chirinos would bunt there. Yeah, that that decision was confusing. Didn't uh, am I misremembering? Did Adam Eaton try to bunt in this game again? <laughs> there was. I, was that? I I, I want to say it was an Astrubal Cabrera bunt that was actually laid down. I don't remember if there was an attempted Eaton bunt. Uh. But yes, there were bunts on both sides. Bad bunts on both sides. Everybody bunting. <laughs> Stop bunting. No so more bunting. Such a weird postseason. Bunts galore. Intentional walks, walks? galore. Yeah. Postseason starters left in so long. Just I don't. It was what very. Year is it? I don't know. Yeah, it was very strange. I thought that so early in Scherzer's start, you know, the velocity seemed fine. And the command was all over the place. And I thought, well, you know, he's probably figuring out like what he can do physically, right? So maybe this will, he'll be able to sort of dial this in. You would probably prefer if you're picking one of the things to work in the very beginning of the start, knowing what we know about his health, I guess you'd prefer the velocity and then hope the command comes. But then Mm -hmm. once the velocity started to decline and precipitously, and the command was still what it was. We're all just sitting there thinking, is the bullpen phone broken? <laughs> yeah. Is Martinez like reacting in some way to the fact that they pulled Strasburg the night before, before he could throw a complete game? And so, dang it, Scherzer will pitch until, I don't know, his neck separates from his body. I don't mean to say that he would have endangered his health because I think that they were they were pretty uh, – uh, well, I don't know. I don't know if he'd been. He, he might have. have. He, I don't think I don't that know. he did. But I don't think he, that he did. He, he might have been willing to. Yeah, let's just yeah. let's just say that he didn't do it. So that's what we know. Yeah. We know that he didn't do it. We don't know, but we wonder <laughs> if he might have. Yeah. And so it just seemed like a very, uh, you know, it was like, um, you know, that moment. This is a great. This is a very relatable reference. It's uh, benefits from being both relatable and very current. So that's going to be what really drives this home. You remember in Independence Day <laughs> when, you know, they're first, they're starting to uh, really appreciate the scale of the uh, the aliens' shield technology and just how ineffective their, their uh, fighter jets are against mm-hmm. the, the little mini ships. And the president, realizing that all of these guys are just getting blown to pieces in the air, yells, get them out of there. I felt yeah. a lot like... <laughs> Is it Bill Pullman or Bill Paxton? I never get this right either. Pullman. <laughs> Pullman. Right. I felt like Bill Pullman in that moment. We're very loose on the podcast. <laughs> so it was a lot like that. I felt like Bill Pullman yelling, mm-hmm. just really hoping that, that Dave Martinez would hear me. Get him out of there. He yeah. didn't do it. Yeah. It didn't matter. <laughs> yeah. But it worked out just fine. Worked yeah. out fine. <laughs> yeah, so I, I guess I'm happy for Scherzer that he had that moment. And yeah. the Nationals, I think, went 10-0 and 0 with uh, Strasburg or Scherzer starting this postseason. So man. they did their jobs. Yep. And man, yeah, I, I mean, there's just so many moments where the Astros could have broken that open. And that was a theme of the series, particularly with the home team in every game, just being unable to get that hit that would put it away and give the fans something to cheer for. So time after time, they came up empty and <laughs> Nats win. So it's just one of those things. But yes, they, they really were kind of walking a tightrope there. <sighs> and so I, I think the like the biggest upset of this game is not that the Nationals won. I think it's that neither Cole nor Strasburg got into this game because yeah. 
I was getting serious Strasburg vibes pitching in this game, and I think it would have been ill-advised, but I kind of thought it would happen because Martinez said in his pregame press conference, like, I'm going to talk to him. I'm going to ask if he's available, and if he had said he was, then it's just like this, you know, it's it's Strasburg sitting down there, and you know it's the Chekhov's Strasburg that he's going to get used (laughs) at some point. So I don't know whether he declared himself available or unavailable, but I think it was very smart to resist that temptation. Cole is a a different question, which we can talk about, but Strasburg just uh, coming off no rest at all. No rest. At some point, you just have to trust the pitchers that you have. And I thought going in, like, if they can't get through this game with Scherzer, Corbin, Doolittle and Hudson, and I guess you could even throw Anibal Sanchez in there, who has been pretty good the first time through the order. If they can't get through the game with those four or five guys, like I don't see how they could possibly be in a position to be winning anyway. So like that should be enough arms to get you through this game. And and if it's not, then you have bigger problems. So yeah. I just think you know, as narratively satisfying as it might be to see the postseason hero Strasburg going out there and being a postseason hero again, that's just a bridge too far for me. Yeah, I imagine that it would have been it would have been a, a sort of break glass, you know, last resort sort of thing to do. And the window in which that would have made sense seems like it would have been very, very narrow because yeah. you would need to have both the urgency, but also the hope that you could salvage the game to make it remotely seem like a good idea to risk. I mean, forget like the potential like health consequences of something like that, that just the ineffectiveness that you would likely see from a guy who threw 104 pitches the night before <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and, you know, had a couple of, uh, you know, didn't really have a, a lot of stress was fairly dominant in that but still like had moments where he had to you know do some do some work so i mm-hmm. i can't imagine that we would have seen him but for a, a very very specific set of circumstances and i'm quite pleased that it didn't come to that because the anxiety of watching that again probably would have made me need to leave the room yeah so the other side of that cole this is harder to explain so cole This was his throw day, so he was on two days rest. Right. But, of course, he had never done this. He had never made a relief appearance. The broadcast showed the graphic. He did it once in college and never since then. So there's a big unknown there. Now, on the one hand, he is probably the best pitcher in the world right now. And you would expect him to be even better in the bullpen. And it's not like I would think that he would get flustered or something it is still pitching but it's a little different and particularly if you're talking about bringing him in mid-inning and maybe there's a runner on I can sort of see why maybe they just wouldn't have wanted to bring him in mid-inning in the seventh with Soto on first I mean I don't know maybe that's just one of those things that you say that it's better to start with a clean inning. Like a, It's not like we've been able to do studies on this and show that starters pitching in relief in the postseason are so much better when they come in with a clean inning than they are when they come in with runners on. Like I've never seen that study, and if you did it, it would be too small sample to be useful probably. So yeah. maybe we're just overthinking it, and it just doesn't really matter. 
I wouldn't want to bring in a guy like with the bases loaded in that situation because maybe he just doesn't feel comfortable facing that first batter in this strange situation. But if it's not bases loaded, maybe it's fine. I don't know. But there were times that you could do it. You could have brought him in to start the seventh with the 2 nothing lead. That would be one yep. time to do it. And I don't know, like if you just said to yourself, I like Granky, I like my regular relievers. Like I just trust them more than the guy who is on two days rest and has never done this before. I would not hugely fault you for that, I guess. It's just it's hard to know what you're going to get out of someone in that situation. It's Garrett Cole. It's probably going to be good. But you bring in Will Harris, you expect to get something good, too, or Ryan Presley or whomever. So that's the thing, except that Hinch had acted as if he wanted to use Cole and was willing to use Cole and Cole was available and Cole was warming. And we haven't seen the full explanation here because we're recording right after the game. But I do see a tweet here from Julia Morales, which says, AJ Hint said he wasn't going to pitch Garrett Cole unless they had a lead and were going to win. Hmm. He was planning on having him closing the game out if they got to that point. And Hmm. if that's the case, then I can't really get on board with that because... Either you think he's your best option to get outs or he isn't. So I don't know why it needs to be for the final out if you have a a lead that doesn't make much sense to me. That sounds like Mike Matheny logic. If you think he's your best option to be on the mound at the end of the game, then he should be one of your options to get to the end of the game. And the Astros used six pitchers and none of them was Garrett Cole. Yeah, I I wonder, you know, the other manifestation of the sort of conservatism that I referenced earlier is being very nervous and perhaps overly nervous about guys who, you know, are very, have proven themselves to be quite adept at getting outs being put into circumstances they're slightly unfamiliar with mm-hmm. and not being able to navigate their way through them the way that they would like with a normal start. So that kind of manager quote, and I don't say this with any sort of inside information, feels so incongruous with the way that Hinch has previously talked about pitching yeah it makes me wonder if you know he there was more to that decision than we maybe are getting from the quote because it just seems very i mean this is a guy who like didn't issue a single intentional walk the entire (laughs) the entire year he is sometimes you know and presumably there there might have been a time or two where it would have made sense to do that there seems to be an orthodoxy to him at times that is could almost be faulted so that answer is very surprising to me if that's the real reason it doesn't seem to make much sense at all especially as the game was starting to kind of you know the gap was was widening and you really needed to maintain some sort of close margin to give your offense a chance to try to come back Mm -hmm. yeah no i i don't get it i mean between that and that robinson trino spunt maybe there was some kind of body swap going on here (laughs) it just doesn't seem like aj hinch (laughs) like he's the manager who I think coming into the postseason, I had the most confidence in just like not self-sabotaging, basically. Like a manager's not really going to win a game for a team. You just want them not to actively lose a game or or put the team in the worst position to win. And I thought, you know, A.J. Hinch is not going to shoot himself in the foot here. But that bunt and this Cole explanation, yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe there's more to it. Maybe you find out that Torinos did that on his own and there's some secret thing about Cole that 
that we don't know here. I will say that just sort of scanning the tweets here, it seems like maybe Cole is not super pleased right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I, yeah, so there's a, a tweet from, let's see. Uh, uh, I see one from just... Jeff Fletcher. Yeah. Who... Jeff Fletcher's with the... OC Register. OC Register, yeah. that's right. Mm-hmm. That says, just saw a clip of Garrett Cole's post-game interview. He was wearing a Boris Corp hat. <laughs> <laughs> or cap, true? rather. Yeah, well, I want picks, <laughs> but that is, that's aggressive. And Hunter Atkins tweeted, Garrett Cole, an impending free agent, was resistant to talk after Game 7. Quote, I'm not an employee of the team. He said to an Astros spokesperson, I guess as a representative of myself dot 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 then he spoke (laughs) so if he is actually like already immediately divorcing himself from the astros and wearing a porous corp cap i'm guessing he wanted to pitch in that game maybe that has something to do with that (laughs) but then this i mean first of all i hope there was a body swap because tomorrow is halloween and this is the spooky (laughs) season but then the question becomes where did aj hinge's spirit go because Mm. it doesn't appear to have gone into dave martinez because his managerial approach was consistent with what it has been in the past is that a good political way of saying that i think it is Mm -hmm. so where is aj hinge (laughs) (laughs) yeah how do we get uh... him back in his body yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that was weird. And mm. I also, I'm always fooled by hits to left field in yeah. Houston. Always. Yeah. So the ball that, who was it? Did Correa hit the ball? Or was it Springer? Springer, maybe. Who hit the ball that looked like it was going to fall maybe for a, a two-run single. And then Juan Soto just barely, barely caught it. Barely like caught it. Like an inch before it hit the grass. And I thought that was a single off the bat. And I thought that like three other times in this game because I always forget that the Crawford boxes are out there. And so the left fielder is playing super shallow. And yeah. so all these balls off the bat that look like singles are not actually singles in Houston. Weird nope. ballpark. Yeah, it's a uh, – I can't uh, – this is the one downside of recording so quickly after. <laughs> I believe that it was – I think it was Rendon. Was it Rendon who made a, a quip after the game about he just uh, – he was just hitting hitting the ball where, where the ballpark allowed? It had to have been, right? Where did that home run he hit go? This game, this game that we just Rendon watched. did, yeah. There, there are always uh, the Crawford boxes home runs that would not be home runs really in any other park. I mean, he seemed to get he seemed to get a good hold of it, but yeah, I, th- I yes. think it was him who said uh, after the game that he just you know he he took what the the ballpark gave him. Mm-hmm. And sometimes Bummer it takes for them. away. Yeah, I mean, for the Astros, that is pretty pretty great for him. He didn't seem mm-hmm. mad about it. He seemed pretty happy with uh, the dimensions. Yeah. Seemed pretty great. Yeah, he homer to left. I remember this mm-hmm. game. Just <laughs> ended. <laughs> Seared in there. Yeah. Right next to the Independence Day references. <laughs> Speaking of Chirinos, there is also that throw on the Eaton steal that then led up two runs after that. Yeah. So uh, that was not a good throw. I think on the broadcast they said that the base was stolen off the pitcher, which uh, often that is the case, and maybe that was the case here. But the throw itself, like when he got the ball – and prepared to deliver it, I thought he was going to get the guy because he got a good pitch to throw on. 
and then it just sort of sailed and wasn't really where it should have been and, and no. wasn't close at all. So that wasn't great either. And then later in that inning, Soto came up with two outs and first base open and a runner on second, and Hinch elected to pitch to him with Roberto Osuna, whereas in game two, Hinch had finally issued that long-awaited intentional walk to Soto. Things didn't work out after that, and they didn't work out this time either because Soto singled to drive in the fourth run. And maybe this was a place where the Astros' complete lack of lefties came back to bite them. They didn't really have an Adam Cleric to go after Soto with, but Soto's really excellent, so who knows if it would have made a difference. I just love his nod when a pitcher makes a good pitch on him, and he'll just look out and nod appreciatively, like, yeah, you got me, but I'll be ready for that next time, and he usually is. Great game, lead changes, multiple lead changes, that's all we wanted in this series, Mm -hmm. and another home crowd got to be unhappy at the end, but them breaks, so. And I don't know if you noticed this, Ben. And I know that uh, not everyone who listens to the podcast is a Patreon supporter. And even among all our wonderful Patreon supporters, not all of them had opportunity to turn, tune in for our uh, our ALCS Game 6 live stream because, I don't know, they were busy. But did you notice that the helper fan was back? Oh, no, I didn't. Helper fan was back, who may or may not look like Coach K. Opinions vary on this question. There is a fan who sits uh, sort of to the left of home plate uh, as you're looking, you know, at the batter, who tries to distract the the pitcher who is an Astros fan. Uh, So he tries to distract the Nationals uh, pitchers in this case, and he brought a friend with him who I swear to God looked like Paul Reiser from Mad About You. So that's a thing that everyone should opine on because it's very important that people agree with me on one of my comps, just one of them. Everyone other than Meg agreed that it looked like Rob Riggle, but she was very insistent that it looked like Coach K. I I was it looked a little like Coach K, but much more like Rob Riggle. That's very generous of you. Uh, You did not demonstrate that same generosity the (laughs) evening of the live stream and i can't even be mad about it because uh no less a scouting luminary than eric longenhagen said no and no less a duke grad than emma bachelary said no and so and you know craig who's got a he's got a keen scouting eye also was like no it doesn't look like him so i know that i was wrong but i will persist in this belief anyhow (laughs) well His helping did not help enough because Mm -mm. the Astros lost. So is there anything else that we can say about this series or this game? I just saw on Fangraph Slack that David Appleman posted a graphic that will be appearing on the front page of the Washington Post that shows the probability that the Nationals would win the World Series over the course of the season. Pulled from Fangraphs, I assume. And there they were at May 24th, down at 1.5%. Wow. And they want it. They want it all. They want it all. I think it's really great. I think that I have especially enjoyed, so I I don't know if you saw that at Nationals Park, they they did a game watch, a big game watch at Nationals Mm -hmm. Park. And it appears that they sold out Nationals Park to do this. I mean, the upper deck might not be open, but there are so many people there. They are joyful and jubilant. There is a gentleman who seems to have managed to work his way on top of 
the dugout and then removed his shirt. This is getting worse, but he is so excited that he took off his shirt and did a little slip and slide on the top of the dugout. People were just uh, exuberant and joyful, and that's a nice thing. And I'm sorry that it came at Astros fans' expense because somebody has to lose. But uh, th- that part's just really cool when you when you haven't seen a thing for a mm-hmm. really, really long time. All of the grandmas and grandpas they interviewed I haven't seen a World Series win in DC in however long. Mm-hmm. Uh I bet they all they all made it to see this one. So that's so cool. What a yeah. nice thing. That's great. Yeah. yeah. So a home crowd got to see the team win. It just yeah. the team they just wasn't there. there. But <laughs> it looks like it was raining. In the ballpark. Yeah. yeah. These people were in ponchos outside. They could have been at home cozy and they elected to watch it there amongst uh, amongst their people mm-hmm. so that they could share an experience baseball can be very beautiful so that's what yeah. i have to say about that yeah and by the way we talked a lot about max scherzer don't want to give short shrift to patrick corbin who no pitched yeah. three really great innings too the the astros in both of these games like once they fell behind they just didn't mount much of a challenge and that was largely because of patrick corbin in this yes. game so in the sense that the money that could have gone to Bryce Harper went to Patrick Corbin and Patrick Corbin helped seal this victory. Bryce Harper's uh, statement about bringing the title back to D.C. It it's came true. to be true. In a way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that... I hope that Nationals fans, I imagine that they're, I mean, they're probably in a mood to be very gracious to everyone because they just watched their favorite team win a World Series, and that's pretty fun. But I hope that people will be gracious about the Harper thing because, you know, it's not his fault they didn't win a World Series while he was there. Not at all. Not at all. He's a good baseball player. He is a good baseball baseball player player this year. Yeah. And uh, it just so happened that the Nationals had Juan Soto, who is uh, maybe an even better baseball player. And and frankly, the Nationals would have been better if they had had Bryce Harper this year. So it's not as uh, the whole idea that like they got rid of him and that helped them in some way. It obviously did not, except in the sense that maybe the money that they had earmarked for him went to Patrick Corbin and the marginal upgrade there was probably bigger than it would have been in the outfield. But Especially when you only trust, as we've established, like four and a half pitchers. Yeah, yes, exactly. So looking forward, I wrote something already about how the Astros shape up for next year and beyond, and that is a question that we could ask about the Nationals too. I, I wonder, because the three most prominent potential free agents, and by the way, by the time most of you are listening to this, free agency has begun. <laughs> like yeah. We're still in the exclusive negotiating with your teams period, but it happened so suddenly, like the morning after the World yeah. Series, suddenly everyone's a free agent, and it's like, wow, can't we just wait and talk about the series for a while? But a, like free agency doesn't start until January anymore anyway, so I yeah. guess it doesn't matter when it officially starts. And B, most teams and most fans have been waiting for the season to end for a month now so that their teams <laughs> can start doing stuff already. So. Some some people have been waiting for it to end since like April. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> So one thing I wonder, because Rendon, obviously, is either the second or third best free agent, depending on whether Steven Strasburg is going to be a free agent. Rendon actually might be the best free agent of all. I don't know. But Garrett Cole is is right up there with him. So Cole, it 
<laughs> certainly sounds as if coal is out the door already, but we'll see about that. But I do wonder just because there has been this historical tendency for World Series winning teams to keep the gang together and bring everyone back. And so I wonder whether the odds of Strasbourg and Rendon both returning to D.C., which like seemed decent to begin with, especially in Strasbourg's case, I wonder whether they are even higher now because they won and good feelings and great clubhouse and let's just keep everything the same and bring back these yeah. same 25 guys next year and try to do it all over again. And obviously Strasbourg has already chosen once to forego free agency and sign an extension with the Nationals and maybe he will use the leverage that he now has after this spectacular season season to extract another couple of years on the end of his deal or something instead of actually testing the market. But he certainly could if he wanted to. Rendon could. The Nationals have made inadequate offers to him in the past, and I'm assuming at this point that he will test the market and, and we'll see. But I wonder that obviously dictates much of the direction of this team and what it will yeah. look like next year, what happens to those two guys. So certainly I, I would guess that Strasburg will be back and the odds seem decent for Rendon too. Yeah. I I mean, when you think about it, it if they both were to leave, it's a not small number of wins to have to replace on the 25 no. man. I would imagine, I would not be surprised to see Strasburg opt out to then return, granted for probably quite a bit more money than Kershaw ended up doing, but to mm -hmm. see sort of a similar deal worked out, right, where he opts out technically, but then ends up signing a new extension with the team to sort of uh, stay in place. I imagine Rendon will test the market and probably find a number of suitors. So it'll be really interesting to see what the Nationals do in terms of upping their offer. I mean, the part of this that I'm the most kind of weirdly excited to watch is that Rendon, Cole, and Strasburg are all repped by Boris. Yes. <laughs> They're all Boris clients, um, yep. which, you know, is indicative of the, the kinds of contracts they might expect. But unlike last year where, you know, you had Harper and Machado who are not both repped by Boris, the sequencing of their contracts seemed to matter to them for reasons that were mostly about the money, but were also somewhat about like the pride of it and setting new highs for total dollars and whatnot. Boris is in a position now where depending on what Strasburg wants to do, you know, he's he represents the three best free agents, potential free agents on the market, and he can kind of choreograph this the way that he might want to. He's not the only player in that dance. That's not uh, an expression. He's not the only dancer <laughs> on the floor. Analogy. We're talking about Scott Boris here. Yeah. Uh, oh, <laughs> it's no. not the only boat in the regatta. Yeah, I, I there you know. go. <laughs> so it's not entirely up to him, but I would imagine that he has sort of an ideal plan in mind of how he wants to sequence these guys deals and probably knows what Strasburg means to do and sort of what his ultimate goal is, whether it's returning to the Nationals or truly genuinely testing for agency. So I am going to be fascinated to see how that plays out and if the fact that he is in a position to choreograph it in a slightly more or you don't choreograph boats what do you do with boats <laughs> you don't plan you don't you i mean chart chart a, a course, course. But that's <laughs> but that's not we're gonna go with the Take a sounding, consult your... It's <laughs> oh, a disaster. I don't know. He should just hire... It doesn't matter. Anyway, um, I will be very interested to see how that choreography 
affects the timeline that we end up seeing those guys sign on, right? Because presumably we will see some slowness in free agency. And I wouldn't be surprised if this market ends up emulating last year's where the guys at the top of the market sign very lucrative deals and everyone Mm -hmm. else is left waiting for a long time. But the, you know, one agent having such a a significant hold on the not only the the best talent available but the total dollars that are going to end up being signed is going to be yeah. really interesting to watch. Yeah, right. And if JD Martinez opts out, right. he is also a Boris right. client. It is going to be the winter of Boris. I guess every winter is oh, yeah. sort of the winter of Boris, but <laughs> even more so than usual, he is going to hold court at the winter meetings and we're going to get so many Boris quotes and oh maybe gosh. we can bring Jeff back to critique the Boris quotes. I mean, it seems like something, a, well, that's probably not something a team employee should be probably doing not. publicly. <laughs> you know, yeah. just in case the Rays want to spend $300 million on Garrett Cole, which uh, I'm sure they're they're planning that right now. So, yeah, I guess the only, like, top five-ish free agent he doesn't have is Yasmani Grandal, maybe, is yeah. the only guy. So, yeah, and, you know, I think the Astros, it's funny, seconds after the Astros lost the World Series with the Nets still celebrating on the field, I got an email from one of those online sports books that send out odds that I don't think you can actually wager on, and I still don't understand what the point of those is, but... <laughs> They have the Astros as like overwhelming favorites to win the World Series next season or not favorites, but, you know, favorites compared to any other team. And that pretty much tracks like even though they are likely going to lose Cole or there's a good chance they're going to lose Cole. They've planned for that to an extent, like they signed Verlander to an extension. They traded for Granke. They have so much depth. They have Urquidy and they have... Peacock and they have McCullers coming back and they have Forrest Whitley and they have all these other young guys who some of them got some action late in the season at the major league level. There's just a lot of capable late inning arms in that mix. Obviously, no one who is nearly as good as Gary Cole. You can't replace Cole, but you can do a good enough job of filling in for him. I think that the Astros can still be the best team in baseball next year, even without him. It's interesting because like you look at the Dodgers and you just can't even imagine a time when they will not be great because they just have such a great farm system and they have all these young guys who just graduated this year or are still technically prospects but made their major league debuts and they're great and they have the most money and it's like this team should just be good forever. Yeah. And the Astros aren't quite at that level, I think, because A, they've gotten quite expensive and again, yeah. like not that Jim Crane can't afford this expense, but they have remained under the competitive balance tax threshold thus far, and it's going to be pretty impossible for them to do that this winter unless they were to, I don't know, trade Springer or, or something like that because they've got a bunch of guys who are in line for sizable arbitration raises, and right now their projected payroll, according to the excellent Jason Martinez of Fangraphs, is $219 million, yeah. which is number two in baseball behind Boston, and from the sound of it, Boston's number may be coming down sometime soon, so... The luxury tax threshold, and I know there's nothing possibly that could be more boring and more of a downer than going from World Series Game 7 to talking about the competitive balance tax, but 
it's I think 208 next year and right now they would be at 238 so they're already well over and that's without Cole and without their other free agents including Will Harris and Joe Smith and both of their catchers but basically they're so good they have so much talent that I think they could do nothing all winter and walk into spring training next year probably as the best team in baseball and Who's going to stop them? Like, you know, the A's are really the only team in that division that seem like they could even put pressure on the Astros next year. And the Astros are like kind of an older team at this point. Like they had, I think, the second oldest batters and the fifth oldest pitchers, or maybe I got that reversed. So they are a mature team now, other than like Jordan Alvarez. They don't have pre-arbitration guys who are still around there. But because they just have so much talent, like as long as they are willing to spend, I think they can keep this going at least until the core really starts to get old. And and that won't be for a few years yet. Well, and, and as you said, you know, they have some payroll decisions that they will likely need to make this year. And then they have additional, you know, situations that they're going to have to sort through in 2021 and 2022, you know, like. Springer's a free agent in 2021. Correa's a free agent in 2022. So is McCullers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know, like the the only real core members of the Astros who are signed or under team control beyond 2022, I think, are Bregman and, and Altuve. Altuve and Alvarez. I, right. I think that's just about it. Yeah, uh, Alvarez is not a free agent until 2026. <laughs> right. Yeah. And who who even who even knows if there will be baseball then? Yeah. Or or. <laughs> A world, yeah. So, <laughs> don't worry about twenty twenty six. But <laughs> live for today. <laughs> Slide on the dugout at Nationals Park. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I I think they have as good a chance as anyone to be right back here again next year. Yeah. But but you can look and see some. I don't know. I wouldn't call them cracks in the foundation, but like. Their their farm system and granted, like they have shown a lot of player development prowess and Mm -hmm. they can extract latent talent from guys who maybe are not high ranking prospects right now. But according to Fangraphs, they went from fourth best farm system at the start of the season to 24th at the end of the minor league season. And that is largely because they graduated Tucker and Alvarez, but also because of the Granky trade and maybe Whitley having sort of a tougher season. Yeah. So so that's a, a big drop. And yeah. meanwhile, the Dodgers, I think, are still third. So they just have it all. Yep. We have the, the Dodgers at third behind only the Rays and the Padres. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although the Marlins are right behind LA. So, you know, all sorts of all sorts of folks are getting involved in this yeah. one. Arizona, the beneficiary of some of those uh, prospects True. is yeah. coming in at five. So. I wonder whether the brain drain starts to have some effect eventually because there was already kind of an exodus going on because other teams were poaching front office people and coaches from the Astros and then some Astros front office people were just leaving because they didn't like it there, understandably, and now... After the Taubman debacle and all the increased scrutiny on the culture of the Astros, 
I think they might have kind of a tough time replacing those departing people with new blood because uh, I, I, I don't know. Would you want to work for this team in this front office right now if you had other good options? Like, obviously, very successful team, but there are some serious downsides that, that come with that. So recruiting may be a bit more difficult. And just generally, like the Astros were the first team to do the, the tank or the extreme rebuild or whatever you call it. And they were kind of the early adapters of the whole player development revolution and do they have a third card up their sleeve do they have another way to be better than every other team or are other teams just going to catch up now because they've seen what the astros have done and they've hired astros people so that gap may be difficult to preserve but you know these are probably two three year down the line concerns more so than than 2020 concerns yeah i think that they're stretched out over a period of time where some of the player development stuff or you know edges that they may have gained just from a general baseball ops perspective may shift or reassert themselves and sadly some of their less savory and quite destructive cultural issues as an organization will probably start to fade from people's memories by the time mm-hmm. things have really started to sort of hit the fan in terms of the the major league roster and the decisions that they're going to have to make there and the mm-hmm. and players sort of falling out of their prime so i will be it'll be interesting to see how swiftly sort of consequence comes for some of that stuff and how strongly it sticks Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I wrote about that. I will link to it. I guess one concern is that you are kind of really relying heavily on two 36-year-old arms. And yeah. Verlander will have his age 37 next year. And you couldn't really think of two more durable <laughs> 36-year-old arms that you would want to trust, but still, there's more downside risk there than there is with, say, Cole, for yeah. instance. So anyway, I have... Two questions for you. One is something that we just got from a listener, Darren, who says, I believe this has been discussed before, but now that the Nationals have won their first World Series championship, which of the remaining six organizations to have never won a World Series title do you think is most likely the next in line to win it all? And those six are Brewers, Mariners, Padres, Rangers, Rays, Rockies. Hmm... Which do I think is the next one? Yeah. It's a tough it's a tough one. It is tough. You have certain teams that have like institutional advantages or disadvantages here, but you also have teams that are good right now. Right. And so do you want to bet on the Rays, for instance, because they are probably the best of these teams? currently and will probably be the best in 2020 and who knows there's uncertainty with all these others so maybe you just say hey this team has the best shot right now so maybe that's the the one that you choose so the Rays would be a pretty good choice I, I guess like you probably wouldn't go at least I wouldn't go with the Rockies nope. I would not go with the Mariners. Nope. <laughs> nope. Apologies. I would not go with the Rangers, I don't nope. think. And that leaves you with Brewers, the, Brewers, the Padres, and the Rays. Rays. I think I would go in this order. I think I agree with you that the Rays are the best of these teams now, and their farm system is just so ridiculously stacked Yeah, that they are going to be able to avoid 
feeling the full brunt of their greatest weakness, which is the payroll. Mm -hmm. So I think I would go with the Rays. Yeah. I think I would then probably have the Brewers and Padres. I can't decide what order, but in some order very close to each other. Because on the one hand, I think that the Padres farm has a lot to say for itself and will be mm -hmm. quite good and will help to supplement that roster. And they have demonstrated a willingness to spend money, although they're probably locked into their biggest contracts already. Mm -hmm. But the Brewers... Our smart and savvy organization, they have talent on their roster as well, and they have also shown at various moments a willingness to actually spend. They do not have the same sort of farm as these other teams. They don't even mm -hmm. have the same sort of farm as, say, the Mariners do. Mm -hmm. In fact, of all of these teams, theirs is the worst farm system, although Colorado, at least by our farm system rankings, Milwaukee comes in at 29, Colorado is right in front of them. Yes. Padres also have to deal with the Dodgers, though. Correct. Which means that they will have a hard time winning the division in the near term. Yes. Although, as we have seen by this very World Series, sometimes mm -hmm. the Dodgers don't play there. Sometimes they true. stay at home. Yeah. Or they Still lose to, there. I mean, that doesn't help. Card but, games, but that doesn't help the Padres. But yeah, I agree. I, I'd go with the Rays and then Padres Brewers. Yeah, that's that's a tough one. Kind of a toss up. Yeah, I think I would probably go with the Padres just because that system is so deep that they will, even though some of the the very best prospects they have have already graduated, right, and aren't mm -hmm. aren't in the farm anymore, they have such other talent that in addition to the guys who will actually be able to help on the major league roster, you imagine there will be some consolidation that could allow them to trade for other players. So yeah. Yeah. All right. So thanks for the question, Darren. And yeah. now I have a question for you. And this is a question that I'm currently wrestling with in something I'm writing. So you can put on your editor hat as well as your podcaster Ooh. hat. What was the team of the decade? Oh gosh. <laughs> This could probably be a, a whole episode, yeah. but I need an answer right now. <laughs> so uh, so this is, uh, it's obviously like a mostly meaningless and arbitrary question because uh, what's special about 2010 to 2019, it's just a way that we organize years for no particular reason. But I am kind of interested. It's It's a fun exercise, not just for the answer, but for how you arrive at the answer and how you decide what the team of the decade was or or how you define that. So I, I will just say, so there have been six teams that won a championship during this decade, but there are some teams that won one and there's some teams that won two. And there's also a team that won three, as you may recall, although that seems like a while ago. Yeah, so I, I have a tough time answering this one it i i think and i've kind of just skimmed previous decades and i mean generally the answer to this question has been the yankees like it's yeah. it's basically been the yankees arguably in every decade since babe ruth except for i would say the 70s and the 80s and the yankees even won the most regular season games during the 80s but they did not win a title so i think during the 80s you probably give it to the dodgers and then the the a's or the reds probably the a's you give to the 70s but other than that it's it's pretty much yankees all the way down until you go back to like cubs and red sox at the beginning of the 20th century i think but 
this decade, I think, is like the hardest one, at least for me, to decide what the team of the decade was because I can't come up with like a slam dunk answer. So let's think about the obvious candidates here. So one I'm going to dismiss right away, which might surprise people given how many of these World Series wins went to them, but I do not think it is the Giants. Interesting. Despite the success that they had in the postseason, I think that when you compare those teams to even some of the competition they faced in those World Series, (laughs) they seem like a very successful postseason team to me. They do not seem Mm -hmm. like a team that had, beyond um, introducing us to the delightful phrase of even your bullshit, do (laughs) not have the same, they don't have the same sort of impact on the way that baseball conducts itself. That is true. Yes. With the exception of maybe the Buster Posey rule. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> true. Yeah. Probably one of the more in- weirdly enduring legacies of that of that yes. team. Yes. But count the rings. But count the rings. That I mean, for many people that would be it. That's that would be it. The argument ender. Right. And that is very reasonable. It I is mean, a reasonable argument. Flags I, fly forever. That is what every yeah. team is trying to do. Which they as did an it aside, more than every other team. It, you know, we should think about two phrases more critically in baseball. The first of which is crooked numbers, because <laughs> most of them are crooked. That's fine. I get the sentiment of it, but eights are pretty symmetrical. So I've always <laughs> objected to the crooked number concept, but that doesn't matter. And yeah. the second is that flags don't always fly forever. They get torn up in the wind. Sometimes yeah. they blow Nothing away. Nothing flies forever. Yeah, the Braves lit one on fire by accident that one time. Not one of their pennant flags, granted. But so, so you know, like uh, those are silly phrases, and we should we should strike them for the record. And I will never win this argument. But <laughs> the other contender from a sort of world, well, one of the other contenders from a World Series win perspective would be the Red Sox. Yeah, where. You have their weird 2013 World Series win, which was sort of yep. this fluky chemistry that's coming in and you know playing way over their skis. But then you also have one of the winningest teams in baseball history winning the other. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting conversation to yeah. you know put those sort of clubs in con- conversation with each other, even those squads in-, in conversation with each other. Then you have the, wow, I can't believe they did it team, which would mm-hmm. be the Cubs, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's, you know, its own kind of argument. Although I continue to say that I sometimes, while I know the fact uh, that the Cubs won the World Series, and I know it was in 2016. I sometimes forget just because of other events that it was in close proximity to. <laughs> and then you could make the you know team that had the biggest impact on, uh, and again, this is of the World Series winners, sort of uh, direction of the game, both in terms of how baseball operations teams conduct their work in-house mm-hmm. how teams think about winning and losing and the utility of each of those things how organizations approach player development and you put all those bits of influence and sort of macro alteration to the game's fabric and concert and maybe you make the argument that the astros are the team of the decade even though they mm-hmm. only have one world series win and yep. a long period of being very very bad at baseball on purpose yep <laughs> so that's an argument Yep. <laughs> you could make an argument that the Dodgers are the team of the decade, even Dodgers though they're- won the most games of the decade. Most games of the decade. They tied for the most playoff appearances of the decade, and all of their playoff appearances were division titles. And 
two penance uh, like that's kind of a a hipster argument it's like hey you just got to get there that's all you're supposed to do and then after that everything is randomness and so regular season that tells you who the best team is and i have some sympathy for that argument but i'm not quite enough of a contrarian i think to say the team that did not win a single world series it wouldn't it wouldn't be the one that i would pick Mm -hmm. probably but i can i can see why one might make Mm -hmm. that argument and because the Dodgers have some of the same claims to that title that say the Astros have in terms of their influence on the game even though their approach the the relative utility they seem to derive from winning in any given season seems to be radically different and so Mm -hmm. maybe you think about those as sort of the two of them as different sides of the same coin I don't know yeah it's a hard question you could probably just say (laughs) the Yankees and everyone would be like yeah it's probably still true (laughs) <laughs> the Yankees did have the most regular season wins of the decade. <laughs> and they have the they do have a World Series win in Well that. not Are if, you I counting? Mean, I'm not counting. I'm going two thousand ten to nineteen. Oh, here. you're not I, counting on nine. Well then never mind. Different definitions of decade, but I'm yeah. Yeah. And some people will tell you it didn't start till twenty eleven, but I I'm not going down that route. So Yeah, that seems like a lot. Um, yeah. okay, fair enough. So forget the Yankees entirely. Yeah, forget Wh- the Yankees. <laughs> bunch of bums. What a franchise. Who yeah. even heard of them? However, love- the, the Cardinals have a yeah. case because the the Cardinals had the third most wins of the decade. They had the most postseason wins of the decade. They won a World Series. They mm-hmm. made it to two pennants. So a lot going for them. And I'm not saying that they are or that they have the best case, but they have a case. They they have a case. They have developed a number of players who, you know, were not thought particularly highly of into significant contributors. You know, one who's going to be a Hall of Famer mm-hmm. and also Tommy Edmund, who's, <laughs> you know, just yeah. the latest small scrappy position player where he got drafted and you're like great that guy's gonna be really good because he was Mm -hmm. going through the cardinal system so i could see that i would find that argument to be a little less persuasive than some of the others i think that i don't on the one hand i don't want to name the astros the team of the decade because that sounds like an honorific and I don't yeah. know that we want to look at all of the things that they have done in baseball right. uh, and put positive value judgments on them because some yes. of them are... You could make a case that they were a bad influence. Correct. That uh, tanking, they demonstrated tanking and now it's spread to all these other sports and obviously the culture stuff that we've talked about ad yeah. nauseum in the, the last couple of weeks. I, I, it doesn't have to be. I mean, it is an honorific, I guess, but if... A big part of your argument is just, hey, which team is most synonymous with this decade? Which team do you identify this decade with most closely? If you're looking back, you're trying to tell the story of this decade. It's hard to tell it without the Astros because they they really changed baseball a lot. Yeah. On the other hand, they were literally the worst team in baseball for the first half of the decade. Right. And can you give it, I mean, they were close to the best team, maybe arguably the best team for the second half of the decade, but going from cold to hot like that, is that representative of the decade as a whole? Except that like they were bad because they were doing the whole tanking thing. And that was a big storyline this decade. So 
Oh, it's really tough. Uh, full transparency here. So I wrote this whole article. I did like pros and cons for each of what I considered the top contenders. I wrote this article before game six of the World Series because mm-hmm. I was trying to pre-write some things and, and get ahead on some work. And so I wrote it as if the Astros were going to win the World Series because the odds were in favor of that. And I thought, all right, I'll 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 just if that changes. And I picked the Astros as the team of the decade. And I had reservations about that, but I had reservations about every team that I possibly could have picked. There was no answer that made me feel great. But the second title, that put them over the edge for me. And now I'm questioning everything because they only have the one lonely little title. Except how silly is that? Am I saying now that I'm deciding my team of the decade based on the last three innings of game well, seven of the World Series? And because Howie Kendrick hit the foul pole, now they're not the team of the decade? Can well, I if make you want, case? If you wanted to say, feel better about not picking them, one thing that you could say is that while their influence is pervasive, the sort of public perception of that influence is relatively concentrated in the latter half of that decade. And so maybe you want to pick something that has had a more consistent, I'm going to talk myself into the Giants, and I hate that. But the Giants are like the opposite of the Astros in that they were the the first half. I know, it's all in the front. So, But just like (laughs) a thing to remember about the Astros. Here's the thing to remember about the Astros, Ben. Do you remember when the Astros Cardinals hacking thing broke? Mm -hmm. And that was in like 2014, right? 2014, 2015? Sounds right. Okay. So that happened. Yes. And I think that clued in baseball observers, particularly ones who were sort of aware of some of the player dev stuff and maybe were thinking critically about that farm system, knew that there was promising stuff going on there. But a lot of people thinking mostly about all of the years in which they lost game after game after game and after game and were just the worst team in baseball, their reaction to that scandal was to laugh very hard about what the Cardinals could possibly want. And by the Cardinals, I mean specifically this guy, Correa, could possibly want with anything the Astros had. And we all laughed. I mean, you and I didn't, but like people laughed. They laughed at it. They thought Mm -hmm. it was laughable that that would be the target of something like this. So that isn't going to disprove that they're the team of the decade, but it does perhaps speak to how concentrated the influence has been, at least in terms of uh, the way that it is perceived by sort of your average baseball fan. And mm-hmm. I think that even within the industry, the influence they've had on the way that teams conduct themselves and think about player dev, their approach, and I'm doing air quotes here to scouting, you know, the the degree to which they incorporate analytics into team decision making, even that has really dramatically escalated in terms of the the spread of its influence of their influence over the last little bit. So yeah. you could you could just say that maybe they are the team of the next decade if we're willing to cut decades and not do, <laughs> you know, like 2010 to 2020. Yeah. <laughs> They're they are the team of a decade. Yeah, well, which yeah. one? Who's to say? <laughs> yeah, it's just oh man, I I can't come up with a good answer. I just, I don't like the Red Sox as the answer, even though they have the two titles and they had not the best team, I wouldn't say, but the most successful single team, perhaps. But 
something about the fact that like that first World Series kind of came out of nowhere, like sandwiched between two last place finishes and three last place finishes in four years. And there was almost no continuity between the 2013 and 2018 teams. Like Xander Bogarts was the only player on both of those World Series rosters. And meanwhile, they had four different managers and four different leaders of baseball operations during that time, which I I guess shouldn't matter, but maybe it does because it's like they were constantly dissatisfied with themselves in a way so can you have a team of the decade that's like constantly trying to change itself i don't know and i like the giants i I think the previous teams of the decade probably were just usually the teams that won the most it's just that this team is unique among dynasties or mini dynasties or whatever in that it just never felt like the most talented team right just never did and the whole even year thing just reminded you really of the fact that this team wasn't good enough to like make the playoffs in back-to-back years (laughs) most of the time and so uh, i don't know that they were i don't think they were ever the necessarily the best team in their league let alone all baseball in any of the years that they won and like they still won and so from a fan perspective if you had to pick a team to have been a fan of in this decade probably the giants i i would think because three titles but they didn't really have like the lasting influence but maybe the lasting influence is not as important i just i don't know i'm going back and forth on this now i think that probably also depends about the way that you talk about the decade that you're locating them in maybe the astros are the team this decade deserves (laughs) that's yeah that's the thing like you know maybe Maybe they've made it a worse decade, but it was still sort of their decade in a lot of ways. I just... uh... I think that... I think with this sort of thing, if I were your editor, the way that I would put it to you is Mm -hmm. that it is the impulse to worry about bestowing an honorific on an organization that you feel not particularly great about is a totally understandable one. And so it really just matters how you frame it. And as long as you don't frame it as entirely an honorific while still acknowledging the great contributions of some of their players who have been excellent and great Mm -hmm. fun to watch, and we don't need to you know, hold Jose Altuve responsible for his team Mm -hmm. tanking. That's not his fault at all. As you said, it is hard to tell the story of the last decade of baseball without talking about the Astros, good and bad, because it would, you know, render an incomplete understanding of the direction of the sport. And especially maybe for people who don't like that direction, having an honest accounting of it is probably pretty important so that you can figure out the ways to to go about changing it. Yeah. So that's what yeah. I'd say to you if I were your editor. Yeah, I that's sort of what I went with. And I would be okay going with that, except that now it's one title instead of two titles. <laughs> it <laughs> but, is, but But that's uh I But don't know. the only the only two teams that can really boast much more than that right. are ones that we've already sort of dismissed as not being super relevant to that conversation in terms of their lasting impact. And I do think that an influence beyond October is important to that. Like it's it's an incomplete conversation if you don't consider the macro part of it, right? I think so. Yeah. I just, I'm picking the one over the three. I'm going to get some grief for that and I will understand why, but I don't know. I I guess uh, 
I'm sort of leaning that way. And by the way, Royals had a, a nice decade at times. Nationals at times. had a very nice decade. Yeah. They won a lot of games. They made up the playoffs a bunch of times, and they ended the decade on the best possible note. But I think they, they fall short of this. It, for me, it's it's Giants or Astros, basically. And it's going to be a game-time decision for me whether I decide that the most important thing is your – influence and because you can't tell the story of the decade without the giants either the no the story would just be hey they won three world series <laughs> but well, that's part of the story that is a big part of the story so i think oh. it's i think it's a worthy question i'm also going to engage in a, a bit of of warning for you ben which mm -hmm. is that there is video floating around twitter of trey turner showing his messed up finger and I would invite you to not watch it. Okay. I'm going to tell you, you shouldn't do invitation. it. <laughs> right. Don't do it. It's okay. terrible. You know All what's right. not the team of the decade? Trey Turner's finger. <laughs> okay. I think they All might right. have to cut it off. Oh, no. I don't think I that they will actually have to do that. When I was little, if I complained about like a small injury or a splinter or something, my dad would say, well, I guess we have to amputate. And then we'd <laughs> laugh. And then the splinter would still hurt, but I would complain about it less. So... That's yeah. what Trey Turner's finger made me think of. Just give it a cortisone shot. That seems to do the trick for everything. I just, I was so worried because what they said in like the in the press conference uh, once they got to Houston was, you know, he he knows that unless he if he feels numbness, he should stop because that might indicate that he would be brushing up against some sort of permanent damage. Mm -hmm. And then you realize, so you've had a conversation where you've explored the range of potential outcomes, and one of them is permanent nerve damage. Mm -hmm. And then you realize this is a very crazy thing that we ask of these guys. And I, I don't know if it's particularly nice, but Max Scherzer seems pretty happy tonight, so I think it's probably fine. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. Well, we've talked a lot. Did you have any thoughts about back carrying, by the way? I didn't get to talk to you about back carrying. I don't care. <laughs> okay. Good. I, That's I, the right attitude to have, probably. I, uh, I enjoyed being reminded that Don Kelly is the first base coach for the Astros. Oh, yeah. How about that? So yeah. how about that? But uh, I don't care. I felt bad that Bregman felt compelled to apologize. Yeah. I liked very much Juan Soto's response, which was, that looked cool, so I did it too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was the, the ideal response. That was The only great. thing I'm, I'm still puzzling over is like what the bat carry signifies, because as Sam and I discussed, and I don't know if you've heard this yet, but Sam pointed out that it, basically it just it looked awkward. Like it, it didn't look like it didn't. No. It wasn't that it, at least to us, made Bregman look like a bad person or anything. It just like wasn't, it wasn't a smooth celebration because he was just kind of carrying it like Bartolo Colon has carried bats to first base. It looks like something you do if you're not used to hitting home runs or like <laughs> hitting at all and you just forget that you're holding the bat and then the first base coach was not ready to receive it and then it was just lying there and it was very strange. But like I don't know what it signifies really. I guess I I guess the idea is that there's some disrespect here, but I don't really know how you get from carrying right. the bat to disrespect. It's like I I remember when I was a little kid and I first heard about the middle finger. Mm -hmm. I was so confused about the middle finger and I thought it was so silly that like people would get angry if you just lift up a finger and yeah. show it to them and not just any finger but this one finger and 
now I get it. It's like this cultural thing. And we've just all agreed that it is a show of disrespect. And it's very silly that holding up a single figure is something that could drive someone into a rage. But like, we get what it signifies. It's just, it's this insult for whatever reason. And I guess that is also the case for bat carrying. But I, <laughs> I don't know what the leap is there. I think that sometimes you just feel bad and embarrassed about, I don't know, about what, but you just feel bad and embarrassed and you remember what having felt bad and embarrassed felt like. And so maybe you worry that the other guy feels bad and embarrassed. And mm-hmm. so then you feel a little sheepish about it. But yep. I, I don't know. It wasn't, if it was disrespectful to anyone, it was to their respective first base coaches. <laughs> yeah, right. I guess it's just the idea that like the bat should stay in the batter's box. And if you do anything else with it, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) It's weird. I think we were reaching on that one. Mm -hmm. And I think that we shouldn't do anything to remotely dim either Alex Bregman or Juan Soto's light. Weren't Mm -hmm. both those guys in the We Play Loud commercial? Yes, they were. (laughs) They both narrated it, actually. (laughs) You need to do a little bit of work to get there. Yeah, I wrote about that earlier this postseason because it's like you have MLB saying this is what we want players to do. Right. And then now like the players themselves are apologizing for it, or at least one of them is, and like the managers are chastising them. And so you get these mixed messages. It's like MLB thinks that this resonates, and I think it does, but the players themselves and older school baseball people not necessarily on board. Well... Now they'll have a very long off-season to think about it. (laughs) Yeah, right. They can workshop their celebrations for 2020. (laughs) All right. So uh, 103 days to pitchers and catchers, I think I saw something like that. Oh, uh, goodness. But only a few days until the next episode of Effectively Wild because this podcast never goes away. We refuse to leave your lives. By the way, some personal news. (laughs) <laughs> I will be taking two episodes off next week. Two love, whole episodes off. You announced that like you were moving to another country <laughs> permanently and changing well, your name, which I is am an traveling indi- to a different country. That I is know. why I will be <laughs> missing these episodes. But if I were your editor, I would say, "Hey, you should take more vacation." That's the thing yes. I'd say if I were your editor. Also, many people have told me that, and I'm <laughs> taking them up on it for Good. once. So. Yeah, I'm going to going to England for a week, and Jesse's already there for work, and I'm meeting her, and we're going to have a, a nice, relaxing week, hopefully. And I have taken lots of trips where I have lugged my microphone and done Effectively Wild wherever I go. It is just the constant in my life. And for this week, it will not be. So I've, I've missed two total episodes of Effectively Wild in its history. Oh, <laughs> Episode 8 and 512, and uh, now I will be missing... That many in one week, it will be strange for me. Not not for you, Meg, and not for you, the listener, because you and Sam will be here, and yep. I'm looking forward to actually getting to listen to Effectively Wild, <laughs> which is a, a pleasure that I never get to experience except in editing when I know what we're going to say, which is not nearly as fun. So that will be a, a great joy for me to do that. And it's kind of like, uh, I'm going to compare myself to Cal Ripken here for a minute. Not that I'm saying that I'm a Hall of Famer, but just that there was that whole discussion about like, well, is Cal Ripken being selfish? Is he putting his Ironman streak ahead of mm-hmm. the team? Because, hey, maybe if he took a day off, 
he'd be better for it and it would actually help the team in the long run. And I'm thinking maybe taking an episode or two off here might actually be good for me. Maybe it will recharge my batteries and I will be a better co-host when I return. But one way or another, I'll be back at the end of next week and uh, I'm sure that everyone will enjoy what you and Sam cook up in my absence. You're already a Hall of Famer to us, Ben. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Enjoy your vacation. Thank you. All right. Thanks to everyone who stuck with us all season long. It was a blast, and we had a fun end and a fun conversation about it, and look forward to spending the winter with you all. So talk to you soon. Sounds good. All right. Pretty fun fact I saw after we finished recording. From the Washington Nationals Twitter account, no team in MLB history had ever trailed in four elimination games in a single postseason and come back to win them all. The 2019 World Series champion Washington Nationals did it five times. That's pretty good. Of course, it's easier to do if you get to play in a wildcard game. But hey, let's not take it away from them. They still faced that pressure and they overcame it. And now they will next see the Dodgers in February at the complex at the ballpark of the Palm Beaches, which they share in spring training. Hopefully the Nationals will not put up World Series memorabilia too ostentatiously there to remind their roommates that they beat them. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and have pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Jason McWalter, Warren Margulies, Craig Kennedy, E. May, and James Walker. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Meg and Sam coming via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend. I will talk to you all at the end of next week. Sam and Meg will talk to you all at the beginning of next week. So until then, thanks again for listening during the 2019 season. The Halloween Parade At the Halloween Parade At the Halloween Parade See you next year at the Halloween Parade